Father God, I want to welcome your presence here today. Uh, I want to thank you for this workshop. Uh, Father, I want to pray for your guidance as we navigate what is a difficult topic this morning of same-sex attraction, uh, that you will open our hearts to your scripture, uh, to your truth, God, that you'll give us a spirit of compassion, but also a spirit of conviction. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're in the middle of a pretty significant cultural shift here in our country. And I'm, I'm going to talk with you this morning about a, a difficult topic uh, as, a, as a man who has been personally affected by this because of my relationships with people. My wife and I got our start in ministry a long time ago. The first campus ministry we planted was in San Francisco, California. Uh, I have personally known uh, many people over the years who, uh, even though I am not homosexual in orientation, I've got a lot of friends who are who have walked away from the Lord because of this very thing, because they have been convinced that their identity is, is so rooted in their sexuality, uh, and the only expression of that is, is in this same-sex relationship. Uh, they, they have been persuaded uh, that that is okay by some false doctrines and theologies that are out there now. And this is something for us as campus ministers and people that are working with college students that we need to be aware of and we need to be ready to deal with and we need to have answers ready and we need to know where, these, uh, where this understanding is coming from and, and where this false doctrine, what it's rooted in and, and how to deal with it. And according to the Williams Institute at UCLA, there's not a ton of uh, people that identify as homosexual in our country, there's only about three and a half percent. I've got some slides if we can put those up there that have these numbers on there. Uh, three and a half percent of adults in the U.S. identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. That's around nine million. Uh, there's only about 0.03 percent that identify as transgender. 11 percent uh, report a same-sex attraction. That's around 25 million, even though they wouldn't uh, consider themselves uh, primarily homosexual in orientation. About 8 percent, 8.2, engage have engaged in some kind of sexual activity that's same sex. Um, the Pew Research Institute is, is indicating to us that younger, the younger generation is becoming more and more accepting of homosexual practice. About 63% of Americans said in 2016 that homosexuality should be accepted by society compared with 51% in 2006. Now this is being driven largely by those younger generations. Um, about 9 in 10 homosexuals, uh, people that identify that way, are saying that society is becoming more and more accepting. Uh, this is true, guys. I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad. I, I, I have kids that I'm raising. When, when I have junior hires that are friends with my kids that are saying they identify as gay or they, don't, they do not identify with their gender, they identify with the other gender, when that's becoming something junior hires are saying now and that's becoming like a thing, it's just, it's, it's a trend, Okay. When I turn on Hulu and there's a pride tab for my entertainment choices, you know, when, I, when I'm watching commercials with my kids and I have to explain to my seven-year-old why the YouTube commercial is featuring somebody with a YouTube channel and it's a man putting on makeup, when I have to explain to them, but you could see how this is being, infil well, we're being infiltrated in our minds through entertainment, through culture. This is going to be something that continues trending in that direction with this next generation. Here's the thing, though. Young Christians are becoming more accepting of this kind of behavior. 
Young Christians are becoming more accepting of this kind of behavior. About half of evangelical Protestants in the millennial generation say that homosexuality should be accepted by society. That's compared with about a third of people that are older than they are. And so for those of us working with college students, guys, you're going to encounter people on campus. You're going to study the Bible with people who have been raised in families and in churches who have been taught that homosexual behavior is okay. Now, I'm saying homosexual behavior because orientation is different from practice. That's something we see all through the scriptures. I think one of the places we've really dropped the ball in the church is we have in the past taught in such a way that it makes people feel like if they have a homosexual orientation or if they struggle with same-sex attraction, they're somehow less than or somehow unloved by God because of their orientation. That is not what the Bible teaches. In all of these passages we're going to look at, you will see that it's always practice. It's homosexual practice that is labeled a sin, not orientation. That's very, very important. So where we are today, homosexual practice is achieving greater acceptance in society. Homosexual practice is achieving greater acceptance in the church. That's being driven by younger generations. And there's also a theological movement within evangelical Christianity that is trying to biblically justify homosexual practice. This is picking up steam. Why are we teaching this class at CMU, guys? Because over time, as I've said, we're gonna have to deal with this more and more as this theology takes root, as kids are coming out of churches that are teaching this kind of stuff. Here's a quote from a popular revisionist author in his book that is uh, trying to justify this kind of behavior. He says that there's six passages in the Bible, Genesis 19.5, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 23, uh, 2013, Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians 6.9, and 1 Timothy 1.10. Look at this. They have stood in the way of countless gay people who long for acceptance from their Christian parents, friends, and churches. Do you notice the language there, guys? He says these passages in the Bible have stood in the way. Does that sound like somebody who's embracing the teaching of the Bible or somebody who's treating what the Bible says like a problem? Okay, there, you see that right there. And then he says from acceptance, that word of acceptance, what, what's he talking about being accepted? Well, the, the homosexual practice. And so there's this movement theologically in the church that's being picked up in evangelical Christianity where people are taking the scriptures and coming up with arguments in an attempt to justify the practice because these passages have stood in the way. The thesis of this book is Christians who affirm the full authority of scripture can also affirm Hi, committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. Hi, Gary. <laughs> who is Gary? Where did that come from? All right. Um, so the question for this class, are the traditional interpretations of the passages dealing with homosexual practice accurate or not? That's the question that we're going to ask in this class. Now, just so you know where I'm coming from, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, I believe that. I believe we're to live under the Scripture. I believe homosexual practice is condemned from beginning to end in the Bible, okay? I do believe orientation is a different subject. 
I believe the practice is condemned from beginning to end. I believe churches and Christians have fumbled when it comes to teaching this well. I don't believe we've done a good job. I think we've been unloving and hateful to people that have homosexual attractions. I think we've fumbled when we tell people their only option for relationship is celibacy. We'll talk about that at the end. I believe you can be homosexual in orientation and live as a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. And I know many who do, okay? I know it. So in order to answer this question for this class, we're gonna look at some revisionist arguments, which revisionist just means gay-affirming arguments. We're gonna look at these passages of scripture that are mentioned in that book I quoted a second ago. We're gonna talk through kind of how they present. We're gonna give kind of a rough sketch outline, okay? We're not gonna be able to get in detail in 50 minutes. But I'm gonna give you a rough sketch of here's what they're saying, here's a counter to that, And the overview of the revisionist argument is that the Bible's teaching about homosexuality has just been misunderstood, okay? That's what most of these guys are saying. Yes, the Bible says that stuff, but we just have misunderstood it. Secondly, when the Bible condemns homosexual practice, a revisionist will say it only condemns abusive homosexual practice or homosexual practice that's driven by unchecked lust. It does not condemn committed, monogamous, homosexual relationships. And so I have personal friends, guys, who are in gay marriages and going to churches that teach that you can be gay and and be married and have a same-sex marriage as long as you're committed to one another, just like you would be in a heterosexual marriage. That's holy. That's what they're being taught, and that's what they've chosen to believe, okay? That's revisionist theology at work. Now, the claim the revisionists make, this is from Matthew Vines. He wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. It's one of the several books that I read here. Uh, He says, the bottom line is this. The Bible doesn't directly address the issue of same-sex orientation or the expression of that orientation. While its six references to same-sex behavior are negative, the concept of same-sex behavior in the Bible is sexual excess, not sexual orientation. So that is a summary of his claim, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to look at these six scriptures and talk about them, okay? You guys ready? All right, let's go. We're going to start with Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a fun one. Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 5. We won't look at the whole chapter. It says, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have sex with them. Okay, that's a jacked up story. Okay, what happens after this? Well, it turns out those were angels. They nuked the city, okay? It's it's not there anymore, okay? Lot's wife was salty about it. Not a good day, right? The revisionist argument. So this is one of those passages that uh, Christians have pointed to to say, see there, God blew that city up because uh, there was homosexual practice there. Now, what the revisionist would say is that Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of homosexual behavior or even sexual sin. Uh, The cities were destroyed for other sins. And the way they make this case is uh, they look at 
13 other times in the Old Testament that Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned, and they cite several passages there to indicate, you know, they say, look at that, not one of those times in those other passages is sexual immorality or homosexuality mentioned by name, which is true. They also say the instance in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, that's rape. You know, that's, that's homosexual rape. That's not the same thing as monogamous committed homosexual relationships. The, one of these things is not like the other, right? Which is true, okay? They have a point. Now, the counter to that is Sodom and Gomorrah's homosexual practice was one aspect of why the cities were condemned. It wasn't the whole deal, like it wasn't just because of that, but it was one aspect. It would be, you would be hard-pressed to say that it's not and make a good case. Here's some evidence for that. One of the passages from the Old Testament that the revisionists claim to say teaches this had nothing to do with it is Ezekiel 16, 47 through 50. In verse 47, it says, you not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. Now, the word detestable practices, it's the same word that's translated, I think, abomination in uh, maybe the King James Version in Leviticus 18, 22 and Leviticus 2013. Uh, it's used there in reference to homosexual practice. The word itself has some sexual overtones. So there's one evidence there that that was sexual immorality from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, okay? Now, these are going to get better as we keep going. Evidence from the New Testament in 2 Peter 2, in verse 7. This is in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. Okay, language matters, guys. The word used here for depraved conduct uh, is sinful, sensual behavior. Okay, Jude 7, in a similar way, now this one's more explicit, okay? Evidence from the New Testament that sexual immorality was a problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Okay, pretty clear. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the Greek here is sarkos heteros. Uh, that just means other flesh. What the revisionists will say is in Jude 7, it, the other flesh is in reference to angels. They got in trouble because they were trying to have sex with angels. That's the problem there. Okay, they didn't know they were trying to have sex with angels. So that doesn't make much sense. Why are they being held accountable for that? Okay, it's sexual immorality. There's evidence from Jewish literature. Okay, this is old. Okay, this is how the Jews talked about this stuff. So that you did not become like Sodom, which departed from the order of nature. When you hear that phrase, the order of nature, we'll look at that a little bit more here in a minute. That's talking about male and female marriage. Whenever the Bible says you departed the order of nature, that means you're, you're involved in something that goes against creative order, it goes against design, it goes against how God intends for marriage to be. From the words of Enoch, the righteous, I tell you that you will be sexually promiscuous like the promiscuity of the sodomites and will perish, okay? That's again, pretty clear. Uh, thirdly, in, in that month, the Lord executed the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were fornicating in their flesh, and they were causing pollution upon the earth. Okay, these are all Jewish sources. Does, do you see a theme here, right? How did the Jews talk about Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, they talked about it as a place that was known for depraved sexual conduct. There's also ancient graffiti in Pompeii. This one is important, guys. 
Pompeii is a place that was destroyed by a volcano a long time ago. My dad has been there. He said when you walk around the city, uh, they had statues of, of uh, penises all over the city. There's these phallic statues. It was a place that was known for homosexual practice. Apparently, a young Jewish man visited there one time and scrawled some graffiti on the wall to describe the kind of city Pompeii was. And amidst that graffiti, uh, there's a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying this place is like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that was a young Jewish man. And this is old. This is a long time ago. So the bottom line that we get when you look at the evidence together is Sodom and Gomorrah is a byword for sexual sin. It was understood to be a place of sexual sin in the ancient times. It was not something that was invented later in history. So for the revisionists to come along and say sexual sin wasn't really a problem in Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not true, okay? But they do have some points. It was, it was not a one-to-one comparison, okay? Secondly, Leviticus 18, 22 and 20, verse 13. Here's what those say. It says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man, uh, with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own hands. Now, this is part of the Mosaic law. This is part of the law that God handed down to his people. What the revisionist will say is that the types of homosexual relationships condemned in Leviticus were abusive or demeaning in nature. And Leviticus is part of the old covenant. We're no longer under that, so we don't really need to pay much attention. Now, uh, one thing that is true is that back in ancient times, uh, society was very, uh, run, very much run by the men, okay? It was patriarchal. Uh, and so if you were a man, you were considered to have more value. You were considered uh, to, to be somebody to listen to. You really didn't need to pay much attention to the women. They were just kind of property. You know, you couldn't trust them. Their word didn't mean much. Uh, and so that was uh, an ancient view, Okay. And what the, what the revisionist will say here is that uh, in this instance, this behavior was either abusive, meaning the sexual abuse of a child, or it was demeaning. You know, the problem here, because of the patriarchy, is that sexual behavior was demeaning because to have sex, for one man to have sex with another man, the passive partner in that relationship, the, you know, you had the giver and the receiver, the receiver was considered to be, you're demeaning him because you're treating him like a woman. So the problem is he's being treated like a woman. The problem is not actually homosexual behavior. And so this is an argument from cultural distance where they would say, because way back then, it was bad to treat people like women because women were not good. So the problem is cultural distance. Well, that doesn't really apply anymore. Okay, we don't live in that kind of society anymore, so we need to not look at this the same way. Okay, the problem with that view is both parties are condemned. Okay, look at this it says uh, in 2013, both of them have done what is detestable. Okay, that doesn't make any sense to say that if somebody is victimized, they are somehow guilty of sin because they were victimized. That doesn't make any sense. Um, 
Vines goes on to say in his book that God allowed patriarchy to exist in the ancient world. He created laws that did not reflect his will for all time, but to manage sin for the people during that time. This is the cultural distance argument where they say, okay, it was for back then, it's not for now, okay? Women in ancient times were viewed as property. They were treated poorly. The counter to this is that the condemnation of homosexual practice in Leviticus is absolute for both parties. It's not given any qualifiers. It's repeated in the New Testament, okay? Now, whenever you go through Leviticus 18, 19, 20, there are sexual ethics that are shared. You know, there are qualifiers that are given for like incest. Whenever it condemns incest, in Leviticus it goes into, here's what constitutes incest. It does not do that with this sin. If God wanted us to qualify this sin, I believe he would have given us those qualifiers in his word. The thing is, in Leviticus, homosexual practice is condemned without qualification. In other words, it's always wrong to do this, okay? Again, it's repeated in the New Testament too. Everything in the Levitical code, there was, there was one law where you were not allowed to have sex with a woman during her menstrual cycle, okay? That's not repeated in the New Testament. The, everything else is repeated in the New Testament. You can't commit adultery. Incest is, 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 is repeated as a sin. Uh, polygamy is explicitly repeated as a sin. Homosexuality is repeated. You know, homosexual practice is a sin. So that's kind of the, the, the uh, counter to that. Uh, it says here, this is a quote from Kevin DeYoung, which Kevin DeYoung has a really good book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? If you would like that book, it's really good. Uh, email me, I'll give you a copy of it, and I'll give you my email address at the end here. This is one of his quotes. He says, Leviticus was part of the Bible Jesus read, the Bible Jesus believed, and the Bible Jesus did not want to abolish. We ought to take seriously how the holiness code reveals to us the holy character of God and the holy people we're supposed to be. Even on this side of the cross, the commands in Leviticus still matter. When the Gentiles entered the church centuries later, they did not have to become Jews, but in keeping with God's moral law, they did have to leave sexual immorality behind. And that's kind of in a nutshell what the problem is here, guys. This is still considered sexual immorality. It still falls under that, okay? Romans 4, or excuse me, Romans 1, this is the fourth scripture we'll look at, is the next one. Uh, this is a big one, okay? Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this is from Paul, okay? This is New Testament. This is, I believe, during the reign of Nero when he wrote this, okay? Uh, the revisionist argument regarding this scripture, now that looks pretty clear, right? Like homosexual practice is wrong. That looks pretty clear. Here's what the revisionists say. Paul wasn't condemning what we think of today as homosexuality, only lustful gay relationships by people capable of heterosexual relationships. Monogamous committed relationships were not in view, okay? And so the argument here is that what Paul is condemning is fundamentally different from what we're dealing with today. This verse doesn't apply because it's not referring to gays as we understand them today. That is, people incapable 
of attraction to the opposite sex. That's not what this is talking about. Here's a quote from Vines. He says, Paul wasn't condemning the expression of same-sex orientation as opposed to the expression of an opposite-sex orientation. He was condemning excess as opposed to moderation. The context in which Paul discussed same-sex relations differs so much from our own that it can't reasonably be called the same issue. Okay, interesting. Would have never come to that conclusion on my own if you put me on a desert island with my Bible, right? But what he says is, is if homosexual practice isn't due to out-of-control lust, then it's okay, okay? That's pretty much his argument. Where does this leave gay Christians? This is another quote. Where does this leave gay Christians who seek committed relationships? They don't pursue same-sex relationships because they've grown tired of heterosexuality and are seeking a new outlet for their insatiable lusts. They pursue same-sex unions for the same reason straight Christians pursue opposite-sex unions. They desire intimacy, companionship, and long-term commitment. Okay, So this is pretty much the argument that he makes. As long as your motives are you just want a relationship, and, and you don't have attractions to the opposite sex, then it's okay, this verse doesn't apply, okay? Guys, people buy this stuff. Um, they go on to argue that the terms natural and unnatural are again referring to the patriarchy that still existed in the first century. So these, these terms natural and unnatural, those are just referring to uh, what was unnatural in terms of the patriarchy, which is funny because lesbians are mentioned here, uh, so that doesn't make sense. This is a, another cultural distance argument, though. They're saying, you know, our culture is so different today from what they dealt with back then. You know, they will argue that there were no committed homosexual relationships in the first century. Side note, that is not true. Guys, we have, the, the, the Roman Empire was not all gay or all straight. You'll, you'll hear scholars sometimes that argue that. The empire was split, just like today, we are split, like some people are all in for this kind of thing and other people are against it for different reasons. It was the same in Rome. I'll tell you, when Paul wrote this, uh, this letter to the Romans, Nero was the emperor. Guys, there, Nero dressed up like a woman and married his soldier, one of his soldiers, in the palace. And then they went back in a back room and, and had sex and he wailed like a woman so loud that everybody in the palace could hear it. That's the emperor, okay? There are other instances around this time where we have documented evidence of people who were in, not crazy like Nero, but they were in same-sex relationships. And it wasn't always pedophilia. That's another thing that you'll, you'll read in some of these uh, revisionist books sometimes is that it was all pedophilia back then. Well, no, it wasn't. That was a problem, just like it's a problem today, but it wasn't all that. There were documented same-sex relationships where people were together long-term in the first century. And we have evidence that that was the case, okay? So for this argument to make sense, they would have to prove that this was never something that happened ever in the first century, and that's just not the case. The evidence says otherwise. Now, the counter to this argument of Romans is that the issue Paul indicates is the problem in Romans 1 is sex between the same gender, period, Okay, it's just what the text says. Uh, homosexual practice is condemned as unnatural. 
This is a quote from DeYoung now. It says, in Paul's mind, same-sex sexual intimacy is an especially clear illustration of the idolatrous human impulse to turn away from God's order and design. Those who suppress the truth about God as revealed in nature suppress the truth about themselves written in nature. Gender is the point not orientation or exploitation or domination. The issue is exchanging the natural relationship between a man and a woman for unnatural same-sex relationships, okay? Now, what the revisionist will say is whenever the Bible condemns homosexuality, it's only condemning the bad kind of homosexuality, not the good kind. And, and I believe what the Bible teaches is when it comes to homosexual practice, there's not a good kind. From beginning to end, guys, there's not a good kind. The issue here, again, they will say sometimes it's pedophilia. Well, this mentions women. We don't have a single recorded case from history. Now, I'm sure it happened, guys, but we don't have any here. You know, DeYoung actually says the issue can't be... Uh, Pedophilia, because there's no record of adult youth sexual intimacy among women in the ancient world. That's kind of weak, though. I mean, just because there's no record of it, like, it probably did happen, but that's what he says. He also says the issue cannot be master-slave relationships or other sexual abuse more generically because Paul speaks of both parties as being consumed with passion for one another. Okay, that's another thing that shows up here. Um, what about this phrase, unnatural? This is another quote from DeYoung. He says, the phrase contrary to nature, in the NIV it says inflamed with lust, translates the Greek words paraphysin, paraphysin. The phrase was commonly used in the ancient world to speak of deviant forms of sexual activity, especially homosexual behavior. We find examples of paraphysin being used as a reference to homosexual practice in writers as diverse as Plato, Plutarch, Philo, and Josephus. Stoic philosophers employ the phrase contrary to nature to the same effect. Look, he's just saying that even the language that's used here is indicative that Paul is saying exactly what it looks like he's saying. Okay, there's, there's nothing you can really do to make this say. This doesn't really say what, what, what it appears to say. Homosexual practice is sinful because it violates divine creative design. Okay? How do we know what that divine creative design is? What is natural in the Bible? Guys, we get this from Genesis 2. It says in Genesis 2, starting in verse 22, uh, which I've got the scriptures, if we can throw those up there. Uh, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Notice in verse 24, it says, that is why. That is why, or for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, okay? Have you ever noticed that for this reason or that is why there, okay? This is given as the basis for marriage between a man and a woman. When we come back together as a man and a woman in a marriage and become one, it's almost like a reunion, okay? And what marriage does, what, what marriage reflects, we are created in the image of God You've got Father, Son, and Spirit, right? God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. 
It's like a, a, a family in the Trinity. What we're doing when we reflect that in our families, whenever you have a man and a woman and a child, that's reflecting what we see in the nature of God and in the Trinity. Whenever we mess that up, whenever we start uh, modifying that equation, it becomes something that does not reflect the nature of God. It becomes something that's unnatural. And if you think about it, guys, sin, anything that, 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 that we learn is sin, we are, whenever we engage in sin, we're engaging in something that does not reflect God's nature. It's out of order. It's unnatural. It's out of design. That's what sin is when we act out of, don't act according to his design. And that's what gay marriage is. That's what these homosexual unions are. That's what homosexual practice is, okay? But what is natural is, is union between a man and a woman. This is repeated by Jesus, by the way. People say Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. If it's so important, why didn't Jesus say something about it? Jesus repeats the marriage ethic that we get from Genesis in, in Matthew 19 and, uh, and in Mark, another spot in Mark. He says, haven't you read? He replied that, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, that's repeated by Jesus. He also explicitly condemns uh, sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia is the word we treat, uh, we translate into sexual immorality or render sexual immorality. It's a catch-all word. It's anything outside, any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage falls under the catch-all word of porneia. Why did God give us a catch-all word? Because he knows we'll look for loopholes. He knows we will. Well, can I do that? And that's exactly what these guys are doing when they say these passages are standing in our way. Let's go find some loopholes. And let's teach them. Guys, I get sad when I go and read the reviews on Amazon by some of these revisionist authors under their books. When I read, you know, they got 800 five-star reviews and I start reading and it's parents whose kids have walked away from the Lord because they want to practice homosexuality. And now the parents, instead of being ones who are going to shepherd that child, are saying, thank you for giving me the truth so now I can bless my child's homosexual practice. What's going to happen to that kid? What's going to happen to them, guys, if they don't turn away from their sin? You know, Daniel said in his lesson, uh, the last session, God loves people. And, and the reason we hate sin is because sin hurts people. You guys realize what's at stake here, right? This is so sad. Romans goes on in verse 29. They've been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. You might make a note of that last phrase there, they approve of those who practice them, okay? When you suppress the truth of God in your life, you begin acting in a way that's contrary to God and you become like a virus for the people around you instead of a cure. 
You become one who heaps on the darkness instead of heaping on the light. And that's how sin works, man. It's like a disease that gets in there, it kills, and it spreads. And part of the way it spreads is through the approval of this kind of stuff and people not speaking up and speaking out or speaking in love. That's how it spreads. And in one sense, with a, with a list of sins like this, maybe you don't want to make too much a homosexual sin because there's so many things that are listed there. But in another sense, he singles out, Paul singles out in the first century, homosexual sin is an especially poignant piece of evidence that someone is suppressing the truth of God in their life. He singles it out. DeYoung says there's no way to rescue Paul from his strong condemnation of homosexual behavior here. The allusions to Genesis, the emphasis on the exchange present in same-sex sexual intimacy will not allow for any other conclusion but the traditional one, God's people ought not to engage in homosexual behavior or give approval of those who do. Okay, I think that's right on the money. Okay? Numbers 5 and 6. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 and 1 Timothy 1 verse 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, okay? Uh, the revisionist argument here says that the Greek words are translated incorrectly. Malakoi should be translated effeminate, and arsenokoitai uh, should be translated abusers of themselves with mankind. Now, this is from Vine's book. I don't think, if I remember correctly, I could find a citation on this section of his book for where he got this information. I've dabbled in Greek a little bit. I've got a couple of degrees from Bible, uh, in Bible. Um, I've taken about 10 semesters uh, in Greek, so I know a little bit. I'm not like an expert or anything, but I know a little bit. Um, this just made me mad when I read this chapter from Vines' book and I've looked at uh, some of the chapters from others, it just made me mad because I know there are so many people out there who don't know any better that are gonna read this and think it's the truth. What I have experienced sometimes, and I've studied other doctrines from liberal scholars, when I read through some of the stuff and they get into Greek, they just make stuff up sometimes. I'm serious. They just straight up make stuff up. And I look at it and I'm like, where did they get that? Okay, no citations here, <laughs> at least on one of these words. I don't know, okay? But there are parents and there are people who are trying to piece together their lives, who are struggling horribly, who are gonna go and read this stuff and think, oh man, that makes sense. That, that, that's totally, that totally justifies. I can be happy now. Okay? And they're going to kill themselves because of this crap. Right? He goes on to say, but if I'm wrong about this, okay, here's a quote. 
But even if Paul had intended his words to be a condemnation of both male partners and same-sex relations, the context in which he would have been making their statement would still differ significantly from our context today. As we have seen, same-sex behavior in the first century was not understood to be the expression of an exclusive sexual orientation. It was understood as excess on the part of those who could easily be content with heterosexual relationships, but who went beyond them in search of more exotic pleasures. So again here, it's like, hey, even if, even if I'm wrong about this, it still doesn't apply, right? It still doesn't apply. The revisionist argument amounts to the same thing. Condemnations in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10 are not talking about committed, consensual, same-sex relationships as we know about them today. It's talking about something else. This is talking about the bad kind of homosexuality. It's not talking about the good kind. Okay, that's pretty much what they're saying. So what's the counter to this? Okay, here's the counter. This one's easy. Peer-reviewed scholarly resources say the Greek words most certainly are translated correctly. And the attempt to change what they say is dishonest manipulation. I'll just give you the, the, the major modern translations of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the NRSV translates male prostitutes and sodomites. New American Standard, nor effeminate nor homosexuals. The New Living Translation, male prostitutes who practice homosexuality. ESV, men who practice homosexuality. On 1 Timothy 1.10, sodomites, homosexuals, those who practice homosexuality or men who practice homosexuality. Those are your modern translations. Now let's make it even more simple. Let me give you uh, authoritative Greek resources, okay? I'm just gonna throw screenshots up here so you will know that I'm not making this up. These are from my peer-reviewed scholarly Greek resources that I have. This is from the BDAG, which is the big boy, uh, pertinent to being passive in the same-sex relationships. That's Malikos. Effeminate. Yeah, he's right. You can translate it effeminate. But the, 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 the meaning of it in the authoritative resource that he uses is being in a passive same-sex relationship. Somebody emailed me last night because they were looking at this and they were like, what's passive in a same-sex relationship? I said, well, you got a giver and a receiver. That's the receiver, okay? Just if anybody was wondering. He said, oh, like a pitcher and a catcher? I said, yeah, that's right. Okay, so if you like baseball, there you go. Um, male prostitutes, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Took you a second there, huh? Um, okay, move on to the next one. This is from uh, the Word Study Dictionary. Uh, effeminate or person who allows himself to be sexually abused contrary to nature, who allows himself, okay? That's not, they're victimized, they allow themselves. Why? Because they're condemned in this passage. You don't condemn victims. I'm a sexual abuse victim. If I found out that the Bible condemned me because I was sexually abused when I was four, five, and six years old, I would be a little ticked by that, right? It's not fair, okay? That's not what the Bible teaches. It's those who allow this to happen, okay? Uh, here's another resource, uh, passive male partner in, a hom in homosexual intercourse. Another one, passive partner in male-to-male -male sex contact, uh, sexual con or sex act, rather. Uh, let's look at the other word, arsenicoites. <clears throat> this is a male who engages in sexual activity with a person uh, of his own sex. Uh, this is a man who lies in bed with another male from the complete word study dictionary. Uh, Greek lexicon in the New Testament, a male partner in homosexual intercourse, or the active male partner in homosexual intercourse, in contrast with malikos, the other word. Uh, now, in this resource, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages, it says male homosexual who takes the active male role in homosexual intercourse. He goes on to say, uh, specifically in pedophilia, other scholars would disagree with him. 
It could apply to that, but that's, they would disagree with this interpretation. This is one that the revisionists would probably point to and say, see there? Well, it's just one guy um, and the others disagree. Very simple though, right? You look at these words in Greek, what do they mean? They're talking about homosexual practice. They're not talking about orientation. They're not talking about, I struggle with attraction. They're talking about homosexual practice. DeYoung says, Paul is saying what we find hard to hear, but what the rest of the Bible supports and most of church history has assumed. Homosexual activity is not a blessing to be celebrated and solemnized, but a sin to be repented of forsaken and forgiven. That is the witness of scripture from beginning to end. If anybody comes along and says, we found a loophole, no, they did not. There are no loopholes when it comes to this. If somebody comes along and says, well, we studied history, I watched a documentary for the Bible tells me so. And they say that the culture was way different back then. That it's, it's just, okay, bull crap. The culture was different back then, but that, that argument is crap, okay? If you go study the scriptures, if you don't have an agenda, and just so you know, guys, if the Bible taught homosexuality was fine, homosexual practice, I wouldn't care. I would not care one bit if people wanted to do that. But the fact that the Bible says it is not okay, guys, as a shepherd in the Lord's church, it is our responsibility, it's my responsibility, and for the rest of you, it's your responsibility to teach what the Bible says. And if people want to shoot the mailman because you're delivering the mail, that's fine. They need to understand, we didn't send the mail, right? We're just delivering the mail. Their problem is with the Lord, and ultimately, they're going to have to answer to him, but we have got to deliver the mail. We can't. We can't, like, skate around this. I hate it when people aren't clear. We've got to have clarity when we're teaching God's Word and when we're teaching the Bible. Why? Because souls are at stake, guys. Souls are at stake. So are the traditional interpretations of the passages dealing with homosexual practice accurate or not? The answer is yes, they are. Now, there, there are some things we could teach better, and I think we're starting to. But to be honest, the, the, the condemnation of homosexual practice is there. And there is no way anybody can go back and take that away and say that this is fine or you can live in a committed monogamous homosexual relationship and be fine with the Lord. No, you cannot. When you get married to the same sex, you are entering into a covenant to sin for the rest of your life or as long as your marriage exists. That is not a marriage that honors God. That is not a relationship that honors God. Guys, it's sexual immorality. That's all it is. That's all the Bible teaches that it is. So how do we move forward from here, guys? We've got to love people. We've got to love people. We've got to be kind to people that have this struggle. Guys, we have a lot of people here at the crossings, many people here in this room that are homosexual in orientation. I know that, Okay. We've been blessed to baptize a lot of people the last few years that struggle with this, who are trying to live holy lives. We don't look at them any different just because they have that struggle. Guys, nobody looks down on anybody around here because of that. But we do teach that it's a sin. And we teach it's a sin that has to be repented of. We've got to continue to do that. 
We've got to teach the Bible, right? Amen? Okay? But I do think, and this is going to be a little, okay, you might disagree. I do believe the church has overstepped in teaching that celibacy is the only option for people that struggle with this orientation, okay? I believe we need to teach what the Bible says, even about that. I don't have the scripture on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians 7, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but, sexual immorality, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife, okay? Here's something revolutionary that you may not be aware of. Did you guys know I used to live a pretty wild life before I became a Christian? And when I say wild, uh, TC has some stories. I got some stories, right? I did crazy stuff. I was a druggie. Uh, I worked in the radio business. I had a limo service that carted me around when I was 21. I got free drinks at a lot of the clubs I went to. I liked ecstasy. I liked cocaine. I liked all kinds of bad stuff, right? Did a bunch of dumb things. You want to know one of the things I learned in my uh, idiotic years? Now, I don't mean to be crude, okay? You don't have to be physically attracted to somebody to have sex with them. Okay, let that sink in, okay? You don't have to be physically attracted to someone to have sex with them. I know, okay? Um, and anybody who has lived really wild lives, you probably do too, right? It's not a requirement. Things still work. And so if somebody comes along and says, I'm not attracted to, if a young man comes along and says, I'm just not attracted to women, guess what? You can still have sex with one, right? Seriously. What the Bible says is if you have unchecked sexual desire, the way to fix that, what God's word says, is to enter into a covenant of marriage with someone of the opposite sex. One of the great men that is, that is on the forefront of teaching on this subject right now is a guy named Guy Hammond. How many of you guys know Guy Hammond? Okay, Renew.org, he's one of the teachers that taught at uh, the Renew Conference, which that Renew.org has got some great resources, guys. If you like to read, uh, or even if you don't, you should start. I would recommend you go there. Um, Guy Hammond is a man who is homosexual in orientation. Uh, if you hear his story, he starts telling stories uh, uh, about hooking up with, with men when he was young, and he went over the top in, in, in terms of his homosexual practice, right? He's got a crazy story. He ended up coming to Christ later. You want to know what that dude did? He married a woman. Now, he said he did not, he was not physically attractive, tr attracted to her. Why? Because he's gay. That's why, right? He wasn't physically attracted to her. We're like, well, how does that work? He's like, you know what? 
If the ultimate example of living selflessly is Jesus Christ who laid down his life on a cross for our sins, how am I reflecting the image of God by laying down my need to have a sexual attraction to my partner just so I can be in a partnership that honors the Lord? Guys, that is how a disciple thinks. And so he enters into this covenant marriage with this woman. He's not physically attracted to her, but you want to know what he was attracted to her spirit? And they had, from what I understand, a great marriage. And the reason is because they were both disciples and she knew what she was getting into with him. But she's like, you know what? I will lay down, I, I will endure the trouble this will bring and the challenges this will bring for us because I want to honor God. I want to help you honor God. You want to help me honor God. Let's honor God together. And that's what they made their marriage about. And so for the church to say, your only option if you are homosexual in orientation is to just not have any kind of romantic relationship at all, I think that's a teaching that honestly needs to be tweaked because I think we're overstepping. That's not what the Bible says about unchecked sexual desire. What the Bible says is if you are gonna struggle with sexual immorality, get married. Get married, right? And that's an option for everybody. You say, what if I can't get married? Okay, now there are a lot of single people that aren't homosexual. They're heterosexual. You say, I want to get married, but I haven't found a partner. I can't. Guys, let me ask you, does that just mean you can just go join Tinder and start hooking up with whoever because you can't get married? Okay, would, would we justify that and say, oh, that's all right. They can't get married. They can, they can just go do whatever. No, that's, that's stupid. But guys, that is the rationale behind the revisionist argument for this, for this kind of theology that we're looking at today, okay? What time are we supposed to be done? Right now? Okay. We're going to go ahead and wrap. Uh, if you guys, can you throw my email up there? Uh, this was a broad overview, guys. 50 minutes for this stuff is not much time. If you want to look into this more, uh, I want to give you a resource from Kevin DeYoung. It's a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? If you want that, shoot me an email, and I will forward that over to you, okay? Uh, it is a deep dive. It is uh, more detailed. He's also got some lectures online if you want to look at those. Uh, a couple of books I want to turn you on to real quick. Can you throw that back to the slide with the books on it? Real quick, we're going to close with this. Uh, there's a picture of Kevin DeYoung's book. Uh, Guy Hammond, the guy I mentioned a second ago, is releasing a new book on August the 15th called uh, Gay and Christian. Um, I would highly recommend that. Haven't read it yet. Didn't get an advanced copy or anything, but I know Guy, and I know that's going to be good. Uh, there's another book called Gay Girl, Good God uh, by Jackie Hill Perry. How many of you guys have read that in here? Okay. Uh, don't buy that to read. Buy the audiobook and listen to it. Jackie Hill Perry is a poet. Uh, she's a spoken word poet. You want to listen to that one, okay? It's really, really good. You can pop in your earbuds while you're working out or whatever. Listen to that. It's really good. Let me pray for us and we're going to break, okay? 
Uh, God, I want to pray um, as we break this morning. Father, this was a, a quick overview of this topic. Uh, I am sure that I did not say everything that needed to be said or was accurate 100% of the time. But God, if there's anything that, uh, that did not honor you, I pray you'll just strike it from our hearts, Lord. But if we were convicted by anything that is your truth this morning, I pray we'll apply it to our lives. God, I pray we uh, look at this with compassion, remembering people uh, are, are at stake in this argument and in this uh, study. God, I pray we will take these resources and use them to bless the lives of others. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.